0: Father, we ask that by your word, in the name of the Lord Jesus, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would make what we have just sung together true in our lives. Make us ready to give our lives and our all to love and follow the Lord Jesus. Help us, Lord, to hold fast our confession of faith and to draw near to the throne of grace with confidence that we might receive from him whom we confess mercy and grace in the time of need. We thank you, Lord, for this good word that you've given to us. And we pray that you would cause it to be indeed living and active in our hearts. We pray that you would be sanctifying us, renewing us, transforming us summoning us home. We ask all this in Christ's name, amen. I would invite you to open this morning to Hebrews chapter 4, and we are going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, so the final verses of Hebrews chapter 4. As you turn there, I would invite you to remember the way that back in the book of Genesis, we read in verse 8 that the Lord walked in the garden in the cool of the day. And I wonder if you can imagine a more intense moment for Adam than the knowledge that the living God was coming among him, that he was about to experience the direct presence of the one who made him. And then with that thought in mind, We read earlier in the service from Leviticus 16. I wonder if you can put yourself in the place of the high priest of Israel. Would there have been a bigger day in the life of the high priest of Israel than the day of atonement? The tenth day of the seventh month of the year when it was his portion to enter into the holy of holies. The author of Hebrews in this chapter, in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, is telling us that because of what the Lord Jesus has done, because of what he's accomplished, because of the nature of the new covenant, we are invited to experience what Adam had in the cool of the day and to Enter into the experience of the high priest of Israel by drawing near to the throne of grace, the living God himself. That's, that's what the author is summoning us into as we look at this text this morning. As you know, uh, as, as we've been making our way through the book of Hebrews, I've been summarizing the message of the book to this point. And I'm going to do that now. And I just want to say here that if you're, if you're visiting with us this morning or uh, if, if you haven't been with us uh, as, we've, as we've made our way through Hebrews 1.1 through 4.13, uh, we're about to fly. So I know this is a lot of information. Uh, but all these sermons to this point are on the website. Uh, you can go uh, listen to them if you'd like to pursue it further. If if you want to come and take a photograph of my notes, you can do that. I mean, not right now. You know, catch me after the service. And um, and, and you can get a summary of what I'm about to say from you. You can email me, call me, text me, whatever, and I, and I can give you this information. So... Uh, We've been talking about how in Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, the big idea here is that God has spoken in his son. And he's given to his people this new covenant deposit of revelation. And because of the way that the old covenant was largely mediated through angels to the Old Testament prophets, the author next in 1, 5 through 14 tells us about how the Lord Jesus is greater than the angels. And then in, in 2, 1 through 4, he says... In view of the way that every transgression and disobedience under the old covenant was punished, and because this message that we've got is even more important, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Because two five through nine, it's not to angels that he subjected the world to come, but to the Son. And then closing off the first two chapters in two ten through eighteen, he he instructs us on how the Son has become a merciful and faithful high priest. And just a, just a note on sort of the structure of the flow of thought in 1.1 through 2.18, he says in 1.3, he speaks in 1.3 of the way that Jesus made purification for sins. You can see that phrase there in 1.3. And that idea that the Lord Jesus is the high priest who makes purification for sins is matched in 2.10 through 18, the final section of this chapter, so the beginning in, of, of this section, the beginning and end of this section, talks about Jesus, the great high priest. And then the section on angels in 1, 5 through 14 is matched by 2, 5 through 9, where the sun, it's not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, but to the sun, putting 2, 1 through 4 at the center of chapters 1 and 2 in this sort of paneled or chiastic structure of chapters 1 and 2. The big idea being, listen, pay much closer attention, because, as we're going to see in three 1 through 4, 16, chapters 3 and 4, because we who have believed enter the rest. So big idea of chapters 1 and 2, you've got to pay attention. Big idea of chapters 3 and 4, because we have believed will enter into the rest, the new and better Garden of Eden. So to summarize quickly chapters 3 and 4, uh, in, in the first unit of chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, the author calls us to consider Jesus, the high priest of our confession, who is worthy of gr- more glory than Moses. And then in 3:6 through 14, he speaks of how the wilderness generation did not enter the rest. And so in 3:5 through 4: 3:15 through 4:7, he speaks of how we who have believed do enter the rest. And then in 4:8 through 13, the passage that we looked at last week together, he speaks of how Joshua when he conquered the land and and that generation took the land, they did not enjoy the fulfillment of the rest that God had promised to his people. And uh, what, what the author holds out to his people is an opportunity to move past the flaming sword. I think that's what uh, in 4.12, the reference to the two-edged sword is alluding to, past the flaming sword into the presence of God in the new and better Eden. And then this brings us to the end of this unit, 4.14-16, through 16, where because of the high priest that the Lord has has given to us in, in Jesus. Because of him, we must hold fast our confession and draw near with boldness. And then, just to speak briefly about the, I think, the flow of thought or the structure of chapters 3 and 4, notice how in 3.1, he speaks of Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. And then in 3.6, he says, hold fast our confidence. We, if, if indeed we hold fast our confidence. And then... Here in 4.14, he's going to say, let us hold fast our confession. And then in 4.16, he's going to say, let us with confidence draw near. So you can hear how 3.1 through 6 is matching 4.14 through 16. And then the the wilderness generation in 3.6 through 14 matches the conquest generation in 4.8 through 13, putting in the middle 3.15 through 4.7 where we who have believed enter the rest. So again, the big idea, I think, of chapters 1 and 2, and then chapters 3 and 4, chapters 1 and 2, we must pay much closer attention because of the greater significance of the one through whom God has revealed the new covenant. And because, chapters 3 and 4, we have believed, We who have believed enter the rest. And so what rest do we enter into? Well, as we, as we approach Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, this morning, I want to uh, set out the moments, uh, the sort of uh, plot line that I think the author of Hebrews is assuming as he speaks of these things to his audience. And then I want to talk about the setting that I think he's, he's envisioning, his words reflect these ideas, and then the characters in this drama that he seems to be describing. So I've already alluded to the moments. The first moment is God walking in the garden in the the cool of the day. The second moment is the day of atonement that we read of in Leviticus 16 when the high priest enters into the holy of holies. The third moment is the rest that we who have believed enter into. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 3. We who have believed enter that rest. So... I think what the author is saying is the rest that God holds out to his people is the enjoyment of his presence. And if you have turned away from the things that separate you from God's presence, that make you unclean so that you're not allowed into God's presence, if you've turned away from your sin, and if you have trusted in Christ by whose sacrifice we are allowed into God's presence, this is what I think he means by believing... If you've done these things, if you've repented and put your faith in Christ, you enter into rest, meaning you enjoy God's presence in your life right now. John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. So uh, the, the final moment, Garden of Eden, Day of Atonement, the rest we enter into now, the final moment, you can see it alluded to, in uh, chapter, chapter 4, verse 9 of Hebrews, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And I think that Sabbath rest is the experience of God's presence in the new heavens and new earth. When, when, when our bodies are made alive the way that our spirits have been made alive. So just a word on the, on the meaning, I think, of what's happened to us in regeneration. If you've been born again, if by the power of the Holy Spirit you have been made alive, it seems to me from what Paul says in Romans 8 and Titus 3 and John 3 and other places, I think what's happened is that God has done to us spiritually what he's going to do to us physically. So that when our bodies are raised from the dead and we are glorified, it's as though our mortal flesh is going to be brought into line with the way that the Spirit of Christ has given us life, spiritually speaking. So that, that will be the final moment when we enter into the new heaven and new earth in glorified bodies. So those are the, the moments. Now the setting. Uh, you can see how in, in 3.1 through 6, for instance, there are these references to the building of a house. 3 3. Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than more, Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. I think the author likely has in mind 2 Samuel 7, where David wanted to build a house for God, and uh, he wanted to build a temple, and the Lord said to David, you're not going to build me a house, I'm going to build you a house. But then there's also this, this... this symbolic significance of the house that David wants to build and that symbolic significance is that the the house for the Lord is like a small scale replica of the Lord's cosmic house, the creation, the universe that God has built. So there's this relationship between creation and then the temple, which is a, a replica on a small scale of the creation. Now, why am I talking about this? Well, Our first setting is the Garden of Eden. That's creation. Our second setting is the Holy of Holies. And and we need to think about the the place at which Eden is exited and entered and the place at which the Holy of Holies is exited and entered. So you know when you read the early chapters of Genesis, when they go out of the Garden, when they're expelled from the Garden, they, they, they go eastward. So to go eastward is to leave Eden, which would imply that to go westward is to enter Eden. Same with the temple. The temple faces east, the tabernacle and later the temple, they face east. And it seems that when the high priest of Israel enters into the temple, he is moving westward as though he is re-entering the Garden of Eden. And, And as he goes into the holy place... There would be the menorah, the the lampstand, which is described in terms of being a tree, likely symbolizing the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life in the garden. And he would pass the table of the showbread, this abundant provision that represented the, the fruitfulness and abundance of the garden. And then on the day of atonement, when he went behind the veil, it would be as though he entered into the very garden of God into the very presence of God. And, and in all of that, he's moving westward into the presence of God. Now, this geography, this geography of Eden and then of the, the tabernacle and later the temple, I think, informs the author of Hebrews. It seems that the author of Hebrews is, is thinking in terms of there being an earthly tabernacle and temple in Old Covenant Israel that reflect the heavenly version where god dwells and so you can think for instance of isaiah 66 1 where the lord says heaven is my throne the earth is my footstool and and we know from other passages that the lord is spoken of as being enthroned above the cherubim and of the mercy seat on the ark of the covenant being his footstool and then the lord says to israel heaven is my throne the earth is my footstool what is the house that you would build for me and so it Seen, and then you, you can remember when we were in the book of Exodus that Moses was told on several occasions as he was given the instructions for the building of the tabernacle. He was told, see that you make everything according to the pattern of what was shown you on the mountain. And these, those statements seem to be understood by the author of Hebrews to indicate that Moses was shown the heavenly tabernacle, which he was then to replicate on earth. And so as we come to this passage, it seems that these geographical relationships are being assumed. It's as though when the author says, for instance, in 4.14, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. He seems to be thinking of the Lord Jesus like the high priest of Israel on the day of atonement. And in the same way that that the high priest of Israel would enter the tent into the holy place and then enter in in behind the veil into the Holy of Holies. It's as though that's what the Lord Jesus has done. And and later in the book, he will speak this way. He he will speak of the, the way that the Lord Jesus has purified, not the earthly tent, but the one not made with hands. And so the Lord Jesus has entered into this heavenly Holy of Holies, and we read repeatedly in the book of Hebrews of how the Lord said to him, Sit at my right hand. Well, I think we should envision God himself, the Father, enthroned above the cherubim in the heavenly holy of holies. And now the Lord Jesus seated at God's right hand in the heavenly holy of holies. So that when we read in 4.16 here that we should with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that's what we should envision. We should envision ourselves being invited into the heavenly Holy of Holies where the Father is seated on his throne with the Son seated at his right hand. And so the settings are Eden, the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, and later the temple, and then remarkably, remarkably, this, where two or three of you are gathered in my name. There am I with you. When the church gathers, and when we commune with the Lord and one another, as we as we worship Him together, we are experiencing together His presence. And so there, there are these places in the New Testament where the church, in the plural, is addressed as the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's also true on an individual level that God's Spirit dwells in us as believers individually, but the church is the dwelling place of God by the Spirit. So this is one of our settings. Our experience together as a church and the communion and the life that we enjoy together. And then our final setting will be that new heaven and new earth, where, as Revelation puts it, God and the Lamb are... No temple there because God and the Lamb are the temple. They are directly present and God's people will see his face and now the characters Uh, in this drama that we're looking at today I just want to draw your attention to two characters the first one is the Lord Jesus and what we're going to read about him and we're we're about to work through these verses now and the second character is those who hold fast to the confession and draw near in accordance with with the author's instructions so we want to hold fast and draw near We want to hold fast our confession, we confess Him, and we want to draw near because He helps us. We confess Him, He helps us. So look with me, if you will, at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. The author writes, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast the confession. So the first thing I want to say here is just look at the author's logic. And and it just boils down to this. Because of who Jesus is, hold fast to the confession. Now let's take it piece by piece. Since then. and, And that word then is relating to what we've seen to this point. Two, one through four. We must pay much closer attention to what we've heard. Chapters 3 and 4, because we who have believed enter that rest. How do we get in? Well, we get in because we have this great high priest over the house of God. And this great high priest, he's told us about him in one three. having made purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, enthroned in, in the heavenly holy of holies as a risen from the dead human being. The Lord Jesus is enthroned in heaven in a glorified human body. And then, and then we read about this, this great high priest in 2, 10, and 11. Look at, look at these verses, 2, 10, and 11. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And when we looked at Hebrews 2, 10 through 18 together, uh, I, I noted that, that that expression, make him perfect through suffering, the, the, the made perfect part Uh, It's it's the same verb used to describe the the ordination of the priests. When when the Hebrew of Exodus 28 is translated into Greek, they translate fill the hand of the priest as make him complete or make him perfect. So this is about the, the ordination of the Lord Jesus to the priesthood. And then look at 2, 17 and 18. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. And, and this is remarkable. This is mind blowingly remarkable in order for the infinite second person of the Godhead, who always and, and ever has been perfectly complete, lacking nothing in himself, in order for him to be what we need him to be our great high priest, something had to happen to him. He had to be made like his brothers, he had to become human. In order to become, as the text says here, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. And we've talked as we've gone through how this perfect and complete one becomes something new at the incarnation. The, the, the eternal word became flesh. So he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of of the people and and the the categories that he's operating with are those old covenant categories what we read in Leviticus 16 of how the priest would take the slain animal and and he would place its pieces upon the altar and the 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 flames would consume the burnt offering Meanwhile, the blood of the slain animal would be taken into the holy place and on the day of atonement into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled on the mercy seat, and thereby the priest would make atonement. And the author is saying, this is what the Lord Jesus has done. But it's kind of like Romans 12. You know, you know in Romans 12, the author of he- uh, uh, Sorry, Paul, I've been referring to the author of Hebrews. Uh, in Romans 12, Paul says, in view of God's mercy... Present yourselves as living sacrifices. So you're the priest, and you're the sacrifice. Well, so also, I think, with the Lord Jesus. With the Lord Jesus, he's the sacrifice, the crucified one, and when he's raised from the dead, he's the priest who who enters behind the veil there to go through the rites of atonement in fulfillment of what the Levitical, Levitical priests did. Look at 3.1 again. Uh, Sorry, let me read uh, 2.18, 2.17, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And then 3.1, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, I think this is the calling into God's presence, Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. 4.14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Because of who Jesus is, because of what he's done for us, the author is saying, hold fast the confession. Now, as we we continue, really chapters 5 through 7 of the book of Hebrews, and, and then some more in chapters 9 and 10 are all about the great high priest. So we're going to get a lot more information about the high priestly minister of the Lord, ministry of the Lord Jesus as we continue through Hebrews 5 through 10. Look at what he says next here in chapter 4, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. And let me just take you through the things that he said about the sonship of the Lord Jesus to this point. Chapter one, verse two, in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. Verse five, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And then verse eight, of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. This throne where he is seated, At God's right hand and then chapter 3 verse 6 but Christ is faithful over God's house and I think this this has a a reference to the church that we are the the temple of the Holy Spirit the dwelling place of God and it has reference to the cosmos over the house that God built and and the the new the new uh, dwelling place of God the new heavens and new earth Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. The Lord Jesus is simultaneously the eternal Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father. And he is the incarnate Son of God, descended from David, born of a woman. And then he is the exalted Son of God. So that these these statements, when, 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 for instance, he says... Like in, in one uh, five, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. In, in the flow of thought, it's as though now that Christ has conquered, now that he has been perfected through his suffering, now he is installed in office as the reigning messianic son of God and son of man. So he is the great high priest. He is the son of God. And he is the one who takes us home. And how does he take us home? Well, look at 4.14 again. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. And we've talked as we've gone through these chapters about how these people would be tempted to abandon the confession. Because if they would abandon Christianity and return to Judaism, they would escape persecution. So for the author's audience at his time, I think that was the way that they needed to hold fast the confession, the confession that the old covenant has been fulfilled by the new covenant, that, that the promised son in the old covenant has come and his name is Jesus, and that God has fulfilled all those old covenant sacrifices through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. That's what they need to confess. And we need to confess all those things today as well. But there are also things that we need to confess in our day that in in the same way that all through the ages, the serpent has has been challenging the rightness of what God's people believe. You can think of the way he spoke to the woman in the garden. Has God really said that you can't eat from any of the trees? Of the garden, and, and just look at what the serpent does, the way he postures himself. He postures himself as the person who stands on the moral high ground, as the person who is in the place of righteousness. And then he is supposedly exposing the unrighteousness of what God has said to God's people. And this is the way it goes all through the Bible with the serpent. This is the way he acts. And so the Lord Jesus addresses his opponents. And he says to them, you are of your father the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning and he's the father of lies. And 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 this is what this is what we see in the book of Genesis with Cain murdering Abel, showing himself to be seed of the serpent. This is what we see with the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus and this is what we see with the false teachers in places like 2 Corinthians, Denny recently preached chapter 11. And, and Paul says there, as the serpent deceived Eve? I'm afraid that these, these people who are preaching another gospel and another spirit and another Jesus might deceive you. And then he says to the Romans, Paul does, that the God of peace is soon going to crush Satan underneath their feet. And this is in a context of him speaking of false teachers. So the false teachers today, the people peddling doctrines of demons today, do you know what they're doing? They're denying that God made the world. They're denying that there are distinctions between male and female. They're denying the the goodness, the rightness, the purity of God's teaching in the scriptures on the ways that male and female are to relate to one another in the holy relationship of marriage and in, in all other contexts. They're denying the gospel of the Lord Jesus. They're saying he didn't rise from the dead. He's not Lord. These are teachings of demons. So today, we hold fast the confession as we recite the apostles, Nicene and Athanasian creeds. We hold fast the confession as we maintain the teaching of of our statements of faith here at the church, the abstract of principles and the Baptist faith and message. And at our next members meeting, we're going to have the opportunity to to affirm by by this constitutional amendment that we're we're proposing, we're gonna affirm also the inerrancy of the scriptures, which the serpent has always been challenging, the created givenness, of male and female and the right way that male and female are to relate to one another in the Nashville statement and in the Danvers statement that's what those doc- documents are about that we're going to Lord willing affirm and add to our constitutional commitments as a church and what we want to do is we want to lean into the, the peculiarities of the Christian faith the things that make us countercultural in this day so for us Hebrews 4.14, let us hold fast the confession. I think in particular, it's remarkable that J.O. prayed for what he prayed for because this is exactly what I was going to talk about, and we didn't share notes beforehand. Uh, Husbands, love your wives and live with them in an understanding way. That is so remarkably countercultural. And it is even more countercultural, I think, for wives to submit to their husbands, for children to obey their parents in the Lord. We are called to do these things because of our confession. These behaviors grow out of what the scriptures teach us about how God made the world, how He, got, how he made them male and female, and then what marriage is about. So, in addition to those three, Love your husbands, love your wives, wives submit to your husbands, children obey in the Lord. Be pure. Pursue, pursue the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Be respectful. What a glorious thing for someone to show honor to whom honor is due. And trust God, not money. And I'm drawing these, these instructions right out of Hebrews 13. Trust God, not money. Money won't save your soul. Money won't deliver you. We confess him. He helps us. Look at verse 15. The author writes here, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And I just want to draw your attention to sort of the paneled structure of this verse. It starts with what we don't have. We don't have a high priest who's unable. It ends with what he doesn't have. He doesn't have any sin. And in the middle, you've got the two things that we need. We need a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, and we have that because of the way that in every respect he was tempted as we are. So he is able to sympathize because of the way that he was tested. We don't have a high priest unable to sympathize. He doesn't have any sin. And this is so instructive for us and so helpful for us because he is exactly what we need. We don't need someone who failed in the same way that we fail. So, you know, sometimes I think we think, well, someone who doesn't struggle with what I struggle with can't help me with my struggle. Well, that's not the case with the Lord Jesus. It's pre- precisely because he didn't give way to temptation. That he is able to help us in our struggle. We have a high priest who is able to sympathize. Able to sympathize because he was tempted as we are. He became man. He knows what it is to be a human being. He knows loss. He knows sorrow. He knows the the frustration and vanity of this fallen world. He was tempted as we are, yet without sin. So, let us then, verse 16, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. We confess him, hold fast the confession. He helps us draw near to the throne of grace. What makes you think that you can walk into the garden past the flaming sword? What makes you think? You saw Nadab and Abihu die in Leviticus 10. What makes you think you can enter the holy place? You're not the high priest of Israel. On what basis do you go into the very holy of holies to draw near to the throne of grace? Since then, verse 14, we have a great high priest. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest. Verse 16, let us then with confidence, this is a confidence that says, that sword is not going to fall on me. That sword is not going to fall on me because of the Lord Jesus. The Lord's not going to break out against me, as he did with Nadab and Abihu, because of the Lord Jesus. No one is going to stand there in the holy place and say, you may not enter behind the veil because of the Lord Jesus Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. And and I think this is so glorious and remarkable. You remember what the Lord said of himself in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. He passed by Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and truth. And the author of Hebrews is summoning us to draw near to the throne of grace, That we might receive mercy and grace. It's as though he's thinking in terms of Exodus 34, 6, and 7. Because when you enter God's presence, that's the God you encounter. The God who mercifully forgives sin. The God who graciously empowers those who cannot help themselves. So the author is calling us to hold fast and draw near to hold fast the confession. We confess him because... He helps us. You won't find mercy and grace from the doctrines of demons. Perhaps you've noticed, as Denny said to me one time, there is no forgiveness in Woketown. There is no pardon there. There is only ongoing penitence with with never any hope of reconciliation. There is no forgiveness in Woketown, but in the Holy of Holies, there's a throne of grace. And the one seated at the right hand of the Father is the one from whom we receive mercy and in whom we find grace to help in time of need. So the big idea that the the author of Hebrews, I think, has for us is we confess him, hold fast the confession. He helps us. We draw near with confidence. Now, earlier in the service... Uh, we, we read Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. The two passages begin in exactly the same words. Hebrews 4, 14 and 10, 19, you could translate it, having then, or uh, as it's in, in 4, 14, since then. It should read the same way in both places because it's the exact same expression. Both passages speak of a great high priest, the Lord Jesus. Both passages call us to hold fast the confession And both passages summon us to to hold fast the confession and to draw near, to enter in. And both passages say that we enter in through the Lord Jesus. And so, brothers and sisters, we must hold fast the confession of the Lord Jesus, the high priest, The son of man, the son of David, the son of God, the one who is able to sympathize because he's tempted as we without sin. The sanctifier of the seed of Abraham, the founder of our salvation, the suffering servant, the radiance of God's glory, the imprint of God's nature, the incarnate word. He will take us past the two-edged sword. He gives us the confidence that we need to draw near not fearing the wrath of God near to the throne where he sits at God's right hand, merciful and faithful, sympathetic and strong giver of mercy and grace. Let's pray. Father, would you make it reflexive for us, instinctive for us that we wholly trust the Lord Jesus that we, we know that we must hold fast the confession because we have nowhere else to go. We have no other hope to make recourse to. And Lord, would you make it instinctive for us, reflexive, that we draw near to the throne of grace. When we are frustrated, when we are discouraged, whenever we find ourselves in a time of need, Lord, make us those who cry out to you. We will confess your name, believing, Lord, that you will help us. And we thank you for all these things in Christ's name. Amen.